Hi, everyone. This is Joe Huggins of the Rocky Mountain Shortcake on Suicide Prevention. And this week, my guest is Dr. Nathan Ainsman, who I first met at the American Psychological Association Conference in San Francisco. Uh, we didn't get a chance to do the interview then, so we're doing it on the phone now. Dr. Ainsman is a research writer on veterans' transition issues and a research psychologist with the Transition to Veterans Program Office. Nate, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. It's great to be on this podcast. I actually got involved with this work and with this research um, through a kind of a side door. Um, no one in my family, including me, had ever served in the military, so I had no family background, really no connection. I'm part of the 99% of the country that had no connection to the military. I started when I was working at the Department of Labor. I was with the Office of Disability Employment Policy, or ODEP, uh, and we were working on disabilities and employment. And I met my mentor, who's uh, Walter Pank, who's been with the VA for decades, and got interested in how employment, as I was seeing, employment could help people with disabilities, and he helped me to understand how important employment can be for veterans with disabilities, for the wounded warriors. Um, working with him and seeing the connections there, the things I'll explain throughout this phone call, I then began to see how it could connect not just to wounded warriors, but to all veterans who were transitioning, that there were things that were universal to them, and how employment could connect with all of them and the difficulties that they might have with transitioning with employment, and Walter and I edited a number of books. We did presentations at ATA and did work with this, and it became a passion of mine and a side gig as a hobby as I continued in other jobs. And then five years ago, um, the Department of, Department of Defense was starting up this office that would handle the transition assistance program. They wanted to have a research psychologist on board, and this was a natural fit. This is the work that I had been doing as a side gig, and now I do it as a full-time job as well and still keep up with editing, uh, writing, and doing presentations. It's been a fascinating ride, and you know, it, I'm very fortunate to be able to work in my calling and the passion that I have, and it's, it's been a thrill to be able to help the people um, who defend, who volunteer to defend our nation, um, that they, when they do take off the uniform, that whatever I can do to help them have um, successful and complete lives afterwards, you know, it's been an honor. And I should add that throughout this, as I've been getting involved with uh, how employment can help with um, treatment of psychological disorders, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist by my background. I'm not a clinician. The two questions I get when I do this kind of work is, you know, when did you serve? And then I tell them I didn't. I get strange looks. And also, um, where I'm licensed and I'm not a clinician, so I can only speak so far about treating PTSD, TBI, um, but I come at this from the employment perspective. So I can advise clinicians uh, who may not be aware of the benefits of employment or how to get a job, uh, as I hope to do with this phone call, is to advise these clinicians why employment would be so important for your clients and then um, how you can help them first realize that and then help them to obtain employment. Right, and that's why we wanted to get you on this podcast because we realize that suicide prevention is something that is is holistic. It's going to take us coming at this from all 
sort of different angles. And the work that you're doing on employment as a transition strategy uh, is very interesting to us. Can you tell us a little bit more about why employment can be such an important aspect to the transition process? Sure, and I can connect it directly to suicide. Right. There's research, and we can provide um, the bibliography citations. There's a connection. They've seen a, a correlation between being in debt, being unemployed, and uh, suicide attempts. And then they did a, a longitudinal analysis over time and saw that suicide increased um, during economic downturns. And it's certainly easy to see the reason that if you're unemployed, you're more likely to be depressed, to lose a focus on life. It can increase conflicts you may have at home. Um, when they look at particularly military suicides and veteran suicides, the number one reason is the interpersonal relations. And a second, not too far behind that, is financial. So certainly a job, having a job can help uh, increase the mental capacity, improve the relationships you have with your family members, and whole linear purposes I can go through with this. Certainly, um, and I talk for all members in the military and veterans, and I'll get specifically into those who have psychological disorders. Being in the military, you're used to having a very structured life. And this is absolutely critical. I've seen in the research a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. You join the military and you volunteered for that because you had interest in something and the dedication to something bigger than yourself, a big purpose of mission. And that permeated your entire time in uniform. And once you take the uniform off, you can't turn that um, part of yourself off. One of the best ways that a member can get that sense of purpose and mission dedication in their life is through employment. I recommend to veterans as they're leaving, find employment that will allow you to have that sense of purpose. And until then, and continuing after you get a job, find another purpose in your life. Volunteer with a veteran service organization, the VSO, uh, get active with your house of worship. But every, virtually every member I've seen has had that sense of dedication, purpose, and mission. And for it to suddenly end on your transitioning out day, even someone who doesn't have any psychological disorders is going to have a hard time with that. So that certainly is how an employment would tie in to any member, and then especially for those who are having psychological concerns. Beyond that, from the literature that we've seen with uh, positive psychology and Andorra's work, uh, learned helplessness, you can see how employment would connect to that. Uh, having a job would give someone a sense of mastery and accomplishment, uh, again, catering to this sense of higher purpose. Um, and then when you look at the theories behind this, if they're unemployed, they're going to perceive a lack of control, and that would intensify the longer that they're unemployed. And we've seen that that can be connected to depression. If you look at the theories of cognitive therapy, uh, having a job, going to work, gives the individual a place where they can reframe their thoughts. So if they have thoughts that they're not worthwhile, they're not an important contributor, they can go to the job and the job will give them positive indicators. And even if they have these negative thoughts you know, under CBT, we know exposure to the positive thoughts will help them to reframe to really question any of these negative thoughts that they may have. Certainly being out in the workforce can avert negative impacts of social withdrawal. They're getting the socialization every day. When it would come to suicide, you know, you tend to be alone when you commit suicide and alone for quite a while, and this allows them to be interacting with people. They're not just sitting home all day uh, thinking negative thoughts. 
we've seen from the work of Craig Bryan and others that really suicide can come on quickly. Frequently, they've had the research that shows people have not really been leading up to that suicidal thought over time. So this gives people daily check-ins and positive reinforcement for what they want to do with their lives and checking in. Hopefully they can have it. They are feeling bad. This gives them an avenue to talk things through. And then certainly money is a good thing to have. And that, while it may not directly um, decrease depression, it does allow a sense of worth. It allows them to feel good about themselves, that they're not a charity case, that they can be the provider for their family, and that they're taking care of the people who are important in their lives. Um, and then all these things you can imagine if someone has symptoms of PTSD, TBI, depression, being unemployed, sitting home alone is just going to intensify them and really make the symptoms worse. And because so that's the reason why how I link employment to the psychological health and this is what Walter helped me to see is really he's a clinician and coming at this from the clinical literature, the clinical studies, what we have been pushing our mantra as Walter and I have worked together is that uh, employment is a psychosocial intervention. So if you're considering uh, medication for a potentially suicidal case, for a PTSD case, um, consider employment as part of your toolbox as well. I've heard of studies where they had individuals with symptoms of PTSD. Some were given medication, the others were helped to get jobs. And if you look at the symptom reduction, the two lines are virtually identical with one change in that with the medication, the effects can wear off over time, and some of them can start returning, where as long as the person is staying in the job, the decrease in the symptoms were maintained over time. So for a clinician who's working with a patient who might be suicide, having PTSD, you know, consider employment and really encourage them. The question that I get is, for a as I'm not a clinician, a clinician may say, well, I'm not a workplace psychologist. What do I know? How can I help with these with gang employment, my response to that is if you're working with a person, you might be the only one who can notice this, who could get them thinking about employment. If you have a client who is uh, describing their symptoms and their problems, you can have the chance to make the argument that have they looked for a job, have they considered how a job might help them with getting out of the house, with doing this, and then particularly making the argument that even if you are symptomatic and having PTSD episode issues, that's no reason to not get employment. Where uh, Walter was instrumental with the VA, the, uh, the theory, the idea was, we're going to get you better and then we'll get you a job. And starting in the 1980s, Walter had the idea, has pushed it throughout his career. I'm glad to say the VA has finally caught up with him, is, you know, we're going to get you a job as you're getting better. And the VA has a great number of programs in rehabilitation that will take someone with symptoms, even severe symptoms, and even TBI, and find them a job that they're capable of doing, and then have the employment counselors work in conjunction with the therapist to really focus on the psychosocial benefits that that employment can bring as part of a holistic treatment program. So for less severe cases, if you're doing one-on-one, -on -one, um, it could be up to you as the clinician to point out, you know, you're not working, have you thought about working, and then to provide them with the encouragement to pursue some of the techniques and the um, resources that we can provide via the website and to open their mind that even if they are having certain issues and symptoms, there's this idea called customized employment where the employer will work with a counselor and clinician 
to adapt jobs to the capabilities of the individual. Uh, in a way, we all do this. I'm about five foot five, so I have to accommodate things around the top bookshelf by getting a step stool. And in the same way, they will accommodate people with TBI and PTSD, and there's a number of great resources. So if someone um, is easily startled when someone comes up from behind, they'll arrange a big rearview mirror next to their monitor so they can see the people. They may arrange uh, rest time. Someone gets you know, fatigued, scheduling um, to work around physical therapy, physical changes, putting in a ramp. Uh, for memory, they can help someone with a notebook and how to write things down, computer programs that can add things. Technology has been a great equalizer. So in the world of disability employment in that they can focus on what the person can do and what they can't, they can either provide a technological workaround or many companies have been great at rearranging jobs to reduce or eliminate the things that might create issues for the individual. So they might change and take something out of a job so that the person can do that. And then the counselor then certainly work with the other therapists and the employment counselors as a holistic approach to the treatment. You talk about a number of things that I want to ask a little bit more about. I remember when we were first chatting offline, you had mentioned this idea about accommodation and making jobs, simple changes that can be done in a workplace to accommodate the needs of our veterans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the, the idea behind that? Sure. On the, there's two ways uh, I would think about accommodations. One would be what employers would do for all veterans, irrespective of disability. I see that as, and I'm seeing a lot of great work from the Society for Human Resource Management, um, the organization I'm part of, the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychologists, of really understanding that the veterans, when they're in the military, are in a unique uh, culture. And the way, and when they come into the civilian world, it's a culture clash that they have a way of living, terminology, a whole structure. Um, it would be like an Aborigine Australian coming to work in New York. Um, it would just be different perspectives and ways of doing things. And we're seeing from studies and the literature that that's really been a big problem with recruiting and then retaining veterans overall. And you know, I'm happy to see there's a lot of research that's really getting at this issue and applied research getting at how do we reduce this and how do we affect it. And a lot of companies are getting wise on the idea of how do we bring in um, and how do these veterans, how do we find them and how do we adapt and respect the work they did and train other people in the understanding the culture where they're coming from and then how do we get them to come in and have the cultures coexist and work productively. There's some universities I've heard that actually now offer mandatory training to their faculty about a few hours where they talk about military culture, um, how the student, the veteran students are going to interact in the classroom, how to really get the maximum value out of the leadership skills they bring, how to respect their work, um, how not to talk down to them. I see this as um, a part of the accommodative process and employers are doing the same thing of um, bringing them in and incorporating and understanding the culture. So that is certainly being done out there on the disability side, it really comes down to just, as I mentioned before, offering the accommodations that are there. Part of it can be architectural, um, building a ramp for someone who's using a wheelchair, 
Um, it can be task redesign. I mentioned the um, adapting a job to something that someone could do. Sometimes it can be reconsidering what the job entails. Uh, there was someone who was told he couldn't work a production line because he had to remain standing the whole time until the counselor asked, why do you have to stand? They couldn't come up with a good answer, so they arranged one of those high stools that allowed him to be able to sit but still remain upright to work the conveyor belt. Problem solved. Computers are wonderful in terms of offering accommodations. Virtually every machine off the shelf that you buy has a screen reader that will enlarge the font. It will speak what you're seeing on the screen. You can get keyboards if you have arthritis that expand out the key. There's dictation software. They're great for intellectual disabilities as well in that you can look up a word if you don't know what the word is easily enough with just a click. You can use it to help remember things by keeping track of um, a to-do list. It can then flash a reminder at the right time if you forget time. It has, and there's good work being done by um, the DOD in the Center for Telehealth and Telemedicine of apps that you can get for PTSD, emotional regulation, different tools. Um, there's great resources which will show where even anybody can call to get advice on these accommodative programs and technology. I've used it myself for carpal tunnel issues. My mother used it because she has arthritis in her hands about how to use a keyboard. Um, they can offer something as simple as the rear view mirror as this keyboard, or for more complex issues that could come up, more complex responses. You know, if someone has anger instances, they have recommendations on how an employer can use that. So really, you know, there's virtually no limitation out there except the human mind, which doesn't see the ability to make accommodations, is the way it's been said. You know, with, mm -hmm. within some restrictions, uh, a person with visual impairment may not be a good bus driver. There's very few exceptions, but generally, most jobs can be adapted to most um, disabilities. And it's really you know, just a question of finding out how and having the determination to do that. One of the things I think that's encouraging about what you're talking about here is that there's resources available to the employer to make this happen. Am I right about that? Yeah, because the, the government has also really spearheaded, and you'll see the list has a lot of .gov results um, at the end of the website. I mean, partially out of self-interest, the government is interested because every – person who's working is one less person collecting unemployment insurance and simultaneously contributing tax dollars to the government. So besides the altruistic purposes, it's also financial. And employers are starting to see the benefits because, you know, we read about, you know, the unemployment rate keeps dropping and dropping. For the holiday season, you're hearing about the retailers who are begging in September to find people. So many employers cannot find good people. And then, you know, part of the reason they are looking for and hiring people with disabilities is altruism. Part of it is just sheer economics. They just need people to do these jobs. So when that happens, they start reaching out to other populations, and they start thinking about offering accommodations where they might not have before. And the employer also will get, on a positive side, a dedicated employee. They say they want people who can think outside the box. Most people with disabilities have never literally been in a box. Their whole life has been about how do I accommodate this? How do I get to that place when there are steps and I'm in a wheelchair? How do I accommodate myself because I have an intellectual disabilities? Um, so they, they're problem solvers almost because they have to be. Mostly, you know, most of them are extremely dedicated 
They've had to be just otherwise people will leave them behind. And that's a great thing that employers find. Um, research has shown that um, most accommodations tend to be inexpensive. Average cost was $500 from one study that was done and most are frequently below that. And if you put in like a ramp or other physical accommodations that might be expensive, uh, most states have federal tax programs that will reimburse you at least partial cost of that. Um, one benefit they've seen from hiring uh, employees with disabilities and then putting a ramp in is that makes the office now accessible to more people. So a hotel would put in a lower table to allow someone to, to have a an employee in a wheelchair to be able to talk to people and they suddenly realize that other uh, customers in wheelchairs now like to go there because physical environment accommodates them. So they find that when they make these accommodations, if people start using, uh, if one person requests a sit-stand desk, others will see it who may not have severe back pain, but they find they're more productive. So usually there might be additional costs as more people become aware, but there is additional productivity that will come from others. And companies are finding and that one of the benefits of bringing in people with disabilities is a diverse range of perspectives. Companies are now seeing that if you have the same type of people in the environment, you're, you're going to get groupthink. And that really the creativity of our leading companies are coming from diverse experiences mixed together, coming up with all the ideas, and that's been one form of diversity that they're finding to have powerful um, benefits. I really liked what you had to say there about the creativity and problem solving that a person with a disability just comes to the table with because they've had to figure out how to get to that table um, and use their wits to to get there in the first place. And so it's really is this change within us, the, the temporarily able, to see um, what we've missed all this time and really understand the, uh, the, the, the potential here that we often ignore. They, they describe Americans' veterans to, as an employment resource um, and then I would say especially the wounded warriors as uh, a great resource but hidden in plain sight. Um, these veterans mm -hmm. come back and go back to virtually every county in the United States as well as those who are you know, uh, coming back with PTSD and other issues, and they're out there. They're just quietly out there um, waiting to be tapped. And I, I do see this as a national underutilized resource. Some of the material on the website talks about the research that my office has done that looks at these non-technical skills that employers are clamoring for, you know, because they're finding a lot of civilians don't know how to follow orders, how to show up on time and be prepared, don't know how to handle a complex situation, you know, can't think on their feet, don't know how to respect others, don't know how to be open to good ideas, um, don't know how to be trained, you know, get very set in their ways. And if there's any veterans out there, you're probably scratching your head because that's what you knew in the military, that the military is training them constantly, developing leadership skills, how to think on your feet. Um, every plan is perfect until the moment it hits the ground. And then, you know, it, the military is not just people blindly following orders. It's fully acknowledged that things change immediately 
and you've got to adapt real quickly or get killed. And they also understand safety procedures, how to communicate verbally and in, in, in the written text. You show a list of these skills to an employer and they'll be like, where can I get these people? And then you just point them to you know, the VA and veterans hiring boards and they usually will sign up pretty quickly. Because I know mm -hmm. even someone who's been in three or four years and came out after one term at 21, they have, and I've had the pleasure of meeting people like that, and the skills they have far surpass anything I've seen in my college counterparts. And as long as the company can understand um, the cultural issues that could arise and can respect what the veterans did and know how to talk to them and how to bring them in and um, understand that they may need a little bit of additional training, but the potential is there, you know, these are great resources. And then on top of that, if they're willing to understand and accommodate any um, symptoms from a psychological disorder, much more so they've got a dedicated employee who will probably be grateful for that opportunity and will give it their all. Go into them and they'll give a ton back. I just want to start wrapping up. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that um, our listeners know and uh, can take away from this podcast? Uh, just to quickly, if they are meeting with one of their clients, you know, help the one would be help them realize the power of the employment. Two would be making them aware of resources. The quick ones would be the American Job Centers, um, and these are the unemployment office, quote unquote. But uh, it's, they've been revised and improved, and they have each location has a veteran specialist who can help them with resumes, with learning how to interview, connecting them with jobs. Um, and they're called American Job Centers. They can find the one in their community and can refer them to there. I'd encourage your members to um, read books like What Color Is Your Parachute and help your client understand what they would be good at doing and what they might be interested for doing as a job. Encourage them um, to use the resources, including they can use my office resources, the Transition Assistance Program, even if they've been years out. It's all available online, and that can walk them through it. For disabilities, there's the uh, CAP program, CAP.mil, which can help them get the equipment. The Job Accommodation Network, or JAN, is that resource that has, you look up the disability that you have, and it will tell you what kind of um, equipment and programs are available to help the person, make your clients aware of that, and then really encourage them to see the value of what they you know, respect and see the value of what they have and help them understand that there are thousands of companies out there that want that. And many of them are willing to work with them. I like to point out that even if they lost a limb or left a part of themselves behind in the battlefield, all these great skills, the essential non-technical skills, their leadership, their devotion, their, their disability is never going to touch that. And most companies will overlook the former, um, will overlook the disability to get their hands on all those abilities and their skills to really help your clients to understand that. And then certainly thank, you know, I'd want to thank them for you know, working with you know, our great asset of these wounded warriors. Mm. Yeah. And we're going to have links to all of the things that, that, that Nate has mentioned here on the podcast and make it very easy for people to find those resources because they really just sound so extensive and so useful. 
again, thank you very much for your time. That's going to wrap it up today for this edition of Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention. 